CSI. I had to put the words up there because the first time I heard it and they said, who are you? I thought they were saying, ooh, Ollie, ooh, 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 ooh. And I said, who's Ollie, you know? So who are you? Who are you? Two weeks ago, I issued a challenge uh, to you to ask the question of your friends and relatives and people you work with, who is Jesus Christ? And uh, some of you have gone to Great Lakes asking people. Uh, I think next uh, Wednesday, Michael is going to show us a short video of some of the people he interviewed on camera. But the uh, interesting question is, who is Jesus Christ? That was two weeks ago. So now the question is, who are you? Who are you? And so we want to take a look at that um, from the scripture this morning. Before we do, I would say this, that as we focus on this more personal question of who are you, I'm not asking you what is your name, but who are you? Who are you? If you were to ask people this question today, I think you'd get a variety of answers. Here's what I think. If you are a young person, you might answer by telling me, well, my grade point average is this. Or um, I have a degree from college. That's who I am. I'm an MBA. I'm a CPA. I'm a whatever other letters after your name you are. A. That was my Canadian coming out there. You might include the fact that you lettered in high school or that uh, you were a starter on the sports team, or an accomplished musician or something along those lines. That's who I am. If you're a little older, you might highlight your job accomplishments or your career choices. I'm a supervisor. I'm a boss of a corporation. I'm a street sweeper, whoever you are. Some might boast of their trophy wife or husband or the number of children they have or the number of grandchildren they have in their tribe. Others might focus on their financial gains their salary, their savings, their retirements. However you respond, it will underscore who you think you are. Who are you? I think most people have a pretty healthy opinion about themselves, don't you? I think they do. And it's not surprising that who we think we are usually focuses on the great things that we think we have done. We are schooled in this from the beginning of our lives right through to the end. When teams are picked, you want the best players on your side, right? Report cards are given to encourage greatness. We seek promotions at work, not demotions. We want more assets, not less. 
We want success, and we applaud everyone in life who succeeds. Our heroes are those who are at the top of their game. And the more highly we think of ourselves, the more poorly we think of others. In life, we become fanatical about ourselves, and we become critical of others. It's nothing short of pride. Now, we may have pride of face. We may have pride of race. We may have pride of uh, place. I couldn't find any other words that would rhyme with that. Grace, that would be even better. Pride has a way of wrapping its tentacles around our hearts and around our minds. Um, and there's no place for it in the Christian life. And there's no place for it in the church. Well, we're going to look at the disciples this morning in Luke chapter 9. They're ordinary men, just like you and me. Luke chapter 9. Do you know that the disciples had issues of pride? You say, wait a minute. I've always seen pictures of the disciples in long flowing robes, walking along the streets of Jerusalem in a very holy way. They were people like you and me. And they had pride issues like we do. And it comes out in this passage very clearly. They wanted to be great. They wanted to be well thought of. They wanted to be important. And they wanted to be honored. But they did not see that the road to true greatness came at cost. It came at a cost of being a servant of all. How many of us really want to be the servant of all? When you think about your life and who you are, and we start listing all the things that we've accomplished, I, I don't think I would ever hear that from anybody. You know, it makes me, you know who I am? I'm a servant of all. That's who I am. How many of us immediately thought, when I asked the question, who are you? Don, I'm the least of the least. I am the servant of all. Yet that is what we ought to be. You know, we really chafe at that thought. If you really stop and think about it, we chafe at that. We find it abrasive to pride. And you may find the old nature creeping in and saying, why are you serving others? Or, why doesn't anyone see what I'm doing? Or, why aren't others serving like me? And it's pride. And Jesus wants to break us of our pride that we might walk humbly in His sight. Micah 6.8, a verse that I've been reminded of over and over again, says this, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly in His sight, or humbly with your God. So this morning we want to talk about pride, and we want to talk about it from this passage in Luke chapter 9. So let's turn there. Um, the first thing we want to see in verses 43 through 45 is that pride blinds us to spiritual truths. So let's take a look at verse 43. And they were all amazed at the majesty of God, 
But while everyone marveled at all the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was hidden from them, so that they did not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. The disciples had the common view that the Jews had of that day, that uh, they believed that the Messiah would come. They believed that he would set up his earthly kingdom and uh, that his kingdom would be set up in Jerusalem. He would sit on the throne of David and that uh, he would rule. The nice thing about the disciples is that they were already on the inside track. They were already disciples of the one who was going to be king. And so if he was going to set up his kingdom, guess what? We've got a good chance of being one of the uh, one of the top level um, people in his kingdom. Great. You know, we looked at some scripture last week from the Old Testament, and as we looked at the scripture, most of the scripture we looked at last week had to do with the earthly kingdom, the messianic kingdom, the uh, millennium, as we call it, where the Lord Jesus Christ will set up His rule on the earth for a thousand years. Wonderful, wonderful blessings. Wonderful promises from the Scripture that we looked at last week. And as the disciples looked at the Old Testament Scriptures, they saw these promises and they said, Wow, this is going to be great. Israel's going to be the head. The nations are going to be the feet. And we are going to reign supreme with the Messiah. Great, wonderful promises. And they are all going to come true. But they had completely ignored the prophecy concerning the suffering of the Messiah. And they're in there too. And we, took, we, we looked at uh, uh, some of those last week as well. Well, as the Lord Jesus was work, working and walking and talking and ministering with his disciples, it became apparent to them that he was indeed the Messiah. Peter proclaimed it when Jesus said, Who do, who do men say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ of God. You are the Messiah, is really what he was saying. So, since he's the Messiah, and he's going to set up his kingdom, they would really be set. One of the twelve in the inner circle, it all goes without saying, they're going to have positions of prominence in the kingdom. And as they thought about this, pride overtook their hearts. And they could see nothing else except for how important they were going to be in the kingdom. Pride blinded them to spiritual truth that first the cross would come and then the crown. The earthly kingdom would not be set up for 2,000 years at least. A time of suffering and rejection and death must come first. And so this is the context of this passage that we're reading this morning. This is what the Lord Jesus is saying to them. Look, let these words sink down into your ears. Listen carefully, my disciples. What does he say? The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. Can I ask you a question? Do you understand what those words mean in English? Are they simple? They're easy to understand. And I can see them going... Just like this. You know those bobbleheads that, you know, shaking up and down? Yeah, we understand those words. But let's not talk about all this death stuff, okay? 
Because the kingdom is coming. And we're going to be seated on the thrones next to you. What's this death stuff all about? Just put that aside. Let's just talk about the great things that are coming for us. The Lord spoke very plainly. He stated earlier that he must die first and then rise again. But that didn't fit in their thinking. Pride wants a crown. It doesn't want a cross. Humility takes up the cross. Pride says, let's not talk about that cross stuff. Let's get to the good stuff, the kingdom, you know, the reigning and all of that. Don't think for a minute, Mr. Robertson, that you're any different than these disciples. For is, is it not true that you like to quote verses? I'm Mr. Robertson, by the way, in case you didn't know. <laughs> I'm not pointing at anybody here. My son. <laughs> is it not true that you like to quote selectively? From verses just as they did. Think about this. I'll read a couple of verses to you and, and think about how we most often quote these verses. One verse says this We are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And then we stop the verse. But the verse doesn't stop there. The rest of the verse says, If indeed we suffer with him, we may be glorified with him. Now, we don't like that part of the verse. And so we exclude it when we quote it, almost always. I've done it, but it's there. And so we say, well, we're going to be heirs, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. All the blessings are going to come our way. True, if we suffer with him. That's what it says. We talk about Paul and quote Acts 9.15. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Wow. Can you imagine the Lord spoke to you and said that to you? I have a job for you. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to stand before kings, rulers of the world, and preach the gospel to them. I'll take the job, Lord. Sign me up. That sounds great. But then the next verse says this. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul writes to the Philippians in Philippians 1.29. For to you... It has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, that's the good part, but to suffer for His sake. And the Bible says this, that all who desire to live godly shall suffer persecution. That's a fact of the Christian life. We want the crown. And pride gets in the way and says we don't want the cross. And yet Jesus said in an early part of this passage that we are to take up our cross daily and follow him. He said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Next, pride creates tension. In disputes, verses 46 through 48. Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be the greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him 
and said to them, Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, he least among you all, will be great. Now, it wasn't enough that the disciples were going to be in the kingdom of God. You know, there's a verse in, uh, I've been uh, thinking about this a lot over the last few years, actually. Um, it says this, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in tents of wickedness. It's an interesting verse. Uh, really, it's saying, look, Lord, give me the lowest place of service. Let me just open and close the door. I'm happy enough with that. Let me do that rather than dwell in tents of wickedness. Pride creates tensions and disputes. It was not enough that the disciples were going to be in the kingdom of God, but now they were jockeying for the top position within the kingdom. I can hear them now. Well, wait a minute. I was the first one chosen among the disciples. Okay? I should be first. And then uh, another one would say, well, wait a minute. I lean on Jesus' breast. When we eat dinner and we're reclined, I lean on his breast. I hear his heartbeat. I should be first. You don't think the disciples talked like this? I'll tell you they did. And I'll tell you how I know they did. Because there were two brothers called the Sons of Thunder. And they had a mom. And I think that it was probably right around this time. And as they were talking, and they were hearing the disciples disputing among themselves who would be the greatest among them, they said, wait a minute. We want to be the greatest. Mom! And they cry into their mom. And so the mom comes with them. And he asks them, asks Jesus a question. I have a, I have a suggestion for you. When you come into your kingdom, I have a suggestion. Put one of my sons on your right hand and one of my sons on your left hand. I've got, two, I've got both sides covered. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying one day in Mark chapter 10, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, grant to us that we may sit one on your right hand, and the other on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? He was speaking, of course, of his death. And they said to him, we are able. So Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized but to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those to, for whom it is prepared. Well, that was the two of the twelve. How did the other ten respond? And when the ten heard, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. For what? For asking the question of being on the left and the right? Why? Because they wanted it too. And they were disputing among themselves who was going to be the greatest. Jesus called them to himself and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. Whoever desires to be great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many." I told an illustration a couple of weeks ago about robbers who went into a place and 
a jewelry store. They didn't steal a thing. And all they did, they just changed the price tags on everything. So the expensive items became cheap items. The cheap items became the expensive items. And the next day, everything that was expensive sold cheap and, you know, so on. All the price tags have been changed. And we have to keep going back over and over again in our thinking because the world wants to squeeze us into its mold that we might believe the things that it tells us. And then Jesus comes and tells us something totally contrary, and it's the truth. What is the truth? The truth is that whoever desires to be first shall be slave of all. That's the truth. That's what he says. Greatness in the kingdom does not come from being well thought of here, but from serving others. When I serve others, what I'm really saying is I hold you in higher esteem than I hold myself. When I serve you, I'm really saying I love you and I love you more than I love myself. That's what service is. 1 Corinthians 13 says this, Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, endures all things. Do you want to be great in God's kingdom? Then learn to be the servants of all. Even to the level of a little child, humble yourself and be a servant to others. Even the weakest among us. That's what the little child was all about. That's the illustration. He brings the littlest, the weakest member of society and he says, you have to be like that. You have to serve even the weakest. And you will learn to be the servants of all. So we're going to take a break right now. And some of you know the song. Um, great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. So let's get together, and then we'll get right back to our passage. Is it up there? Okay. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, Learn to be the servant of all. Learn to be the servant of all. Learn to be the servant of all. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, Learn to be the servant of all. How many is that the first time you've ever heard that song? Oh, a few. Okay. Well, that you've heard it, sing it all week long. Okay? If you learn nothing else from this message today, if you want to be great, learn to be the servants of all. Okay, number three. Pride makes us critical of other believers. Verse 49. John answered and said, Master... We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. Have you ever heard of the term friendly fire? 
It's a military term that's used um, in military circles, and it's, it's used of an, an occasion when in the midst of war or battle, there are casualties. But when someone on your own side shoots you, that's called friendly fire. Okay? They didn't mean to. It was not intentional, but you got in the way of their bullet. And uh, that's called friendly fire. Well, there's friendly fire here, but it's no accident. In these verses, it seems like the disciples have engaged in putting down not their enemy, but their own brothers. And it's destructive. Pride makes us critical of other believers. You know, it may surprise you if I tell you this. Just, just a secret amongst us here, okay? There really are some good churches out there besides Calvary Bible Chapel. <laughs> you may not know that, but it's true. There are a lot of good Christians out there besides the people that belong to this church or that are part of this church. There are people who are doing a great work for God, and believe it or not, they're not from the assemblies. <gasps> there are some wonderful Baptists. There are some wonderful Presbyterians. There are some wonderful Lutherans out there. There are some wonderful Pentecostals out there. There are some wonderful Christians that come from every stripe. Any true believer is my brother and my sister in Christ. And yet I often hear caustic and hurtful comments about others who don't meet exactly the way we do or who don't think exactly the way we do. You know what? Who's wrong? I've been so often refreshed by brothers and sisters who have not had the teaching that we have here at Calvary and yet are doing more with less teaching than we are. And I'm so refreshed by that. I think, wow, you know so, I don't say this, but you know so little, and yet you're doing so much with it. You're taking the word and you're putting it, putting it to your feet. You're walking the walk. You're talking the talk. And you've had so little input. Wow. It's amazing what God has done. And so often I've seen fruit in their lives that I don't see in the lives of those who should know better. Who are we to look down our theological noses at others, other true believers, who are more fruitful, godlier, and more like Jesus than I am. Pride makes us critical of other believers. Well, it also makes us intolerant of others. Verse 51. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, here they are again, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just like Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. The tension between the Jews and the Samaritans um, was well known. It's been a long and bitter feud 
The Samaritans were a mixed race. They were culturally different, uh, religiously mixed, and uh, they despised the Jews. The Jews despised them. Mutual agreement. Jews considered themselves to be a pure race, truer to God, superior to the Samaritans. The, the Samaritan woman at the well summed it up well when she said this to Jesus in John chapter 4. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan? For Jews, and this is what she said, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, there are very many modern parallels to this Jewish-Samaritan uh, enmity. Indeed, wherever people are divided by racial and ethnic barriers, somebody said this, it is not the person from the radically different culture on the other side of the world that is hardest to love, but the nearby neighbor whose skin color, language, rituals, values, ancestry, history, and customs are different than one's own. Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. Can I ask you a question? With whom do you have no dealings? In your heart, is there a block somewhere between you and another race, between you and a different kind of person? Pride will make you think that you're superior to others. And in our words and in our thoughts and in our actions, we expose who we are. Who are you? And the problem is that this kind of pride destroys churches. This kind of pride makes us unfruitful and it destroys the work of God. If we were to take this kind of pride and examine it under a microscope, this is what we would find. Hatred. That's what it is. Let's call it what it is. It is hatred of others who are different than we are. And we have seen this kind of hatred taken to extreme levels in the person of Adolf Hitler, haven't we? And we see it in the words of the disciples, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? They're looking for obliteration. They wanted to obliterate a town. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. I'll tell you something. If you have this kind of pride, repent of it today. Repent of it today. It's not a reflection of Christ. It's not a reflection of His ways. He came to seek and to save those who are lost. Who's lost? We have a whole world lost in sin. And God has a heart for the whole world. Every color. Every nation, every tongue. In fact, the scripture is so wonderful. It says this. There's going to be a song in heaven, a new song of praise to the Lord. We see it in Revelation 5, 9, and it says this. And they sang a new song saying to, uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue, and people, and nation. I'm so glad God has a heart that wide. Because it included even 
a simple Canadian like me. Okay? And it includes you as well. Brothers and sisters, we are living in the age of grace, not retribution. That is, as Jesus said, the acceptable year of the Lord, not the day of vengeance of our God. That's not the day and age we're living in right now. It is a day in which we are to do good to all men. Romans 12 says this, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, finally, number five, pride hinders true discipleship. We're going to read, starting with verse 57. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but two of the three who claimed they wanted to follow the Lord said, Lord, me first. Lord, me first. That doesn't fit. You know that, right? If he's Lord, I can't also be Lord. It can't be me first. It has to be him first. And that's what pride is. Pride is saying, me first. But the scripture says that in all things, he must have the preeminence. <clears throat> he must have first place in my heart, in my life. In my all. So often the attitude today is, I'm going to do my own thing. I don't care what it says. I don't care what Jesus says. I don't care what God says. I don't care about anything. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to choose my own path. I will not seek the Lord first. I will not have this man reign over me. Yay, freedom. But he is Lord. And every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We sing songs that he is Lord. We like to quote that scripture that I just quoted. But is Jesus really Lord of your life? Is he really? Who is he? He is Lord. Who are you? Not Lord. I hope you can say, I am a servant. Of the Most High God. And if we are His servants, then we will not respond like these three would be disciples. So, first of all, we have the first one who said, really, it's the, hinder, the reason he didn't follow the Lord, it was the hindrance of a comfortable life. In our uh, wedding vows many, many moons ago, I know I'm ancient history now, but Krista quoted within her vows the passage from Ruth chapter 1, verse 16 that says this. 
But Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. She said it. She meant it. And she still puts up with me. And in all the changing circumstances of our lives, she has been by my side. Well, the Lord tested his disciples and in effect said this, you want to follow me no matter what? Even the animals have a place to live. Even the foxes have holes, the birds have nests. But I, the Son of Man, have nowhere to lay my head. Do you still want to follow me? Go wherever I go. Be wherever I am. So many people start off well in the Christian life. They, they trust the Lord with a burst of enthusiasm. I'll follow you anywhere, Lord. Just tell me where you want me to go. Oh, you want me to go there? You want me to do that? Are you kidding me? No, thank you. I just withdraw everything I said. Soon the trial comes. Soon life becomes uncomfortable. And they run just as fast the other direction. If you are going to follow the Lord, do so with no reservations. Second, the hindrance of wrong priorities. Then he said to another, follow me. He said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Well, you know, there actually is some question here as to whether or not the father was really dead. It's probably just an excuse. And he was hiding behind the uh, priority that he had. You know, it really wasn't his priority to follow the Lord. And so, on the spot, okay, what could I put as a hindrance for me following the Lord? I have to take care of my father. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? In fact, the Scripture actually commands it. It says in the Scripture that if we don't care for our own parents, is in the context what it means, we are worse than infidels. Because even unbelievers do that much. And so he's saying, look, i got to go take care of my father. But his father probably was very much alive and very healthy. And what he's saying is, I'll just let the years roll on until my father's dead. Then I'll think about it. Then I'll think about following you, Lord. And that Lord part was in there too. 1979. I sensed a call of the Lord to go into his service. Um, but I was part of a family business. I was the only son, still am the only son of my parents. And it was their expectation that I should take on the family business because that's what they had trained me to do. They started with a broom and said, sweep the floors. And that's how I started. And then I learned my trade, cabinet maker. And then I went on and became a salesman and managed the business for a while. And they expected me fully to take over the responsibility of the business. But the Lord had other plans. And I had to make a decision. Do I follow the Lord and his leading? Or do I stay here and bury my father? And I had to make that decision. Well, one of these verses right here helped me to think through clearly. Let the dead bury the dead. Wow. 
That sounds terrible, talking about your father that way. My father is still very much alive. I love him dearly. Um, But that was 33 years ago. And if I had said at that time, Lord, let me first bury my father, I would still be waiting. I would still be waiting. Not that I'm looking forward to his death. I don't mean it that way. But he's not dead yet. And 33 years of my life, the best years of my life, would have passed. And who knows, I may die. He may bury me. You see, there's a limited time in our lives to serve the Lord. The Lord promises average life 70 years. We're not guaranteed another minute. What hinders you to serve the Lord? I remember a man I spoke to about this and other passages like this. He actually came to me one day. We were going over some scripture and he was in a class I was teaching. And he came to me and he says, you know, Don, as we look at these scriptures, I really, really believe that the Lord wants me to serve him. And I said to him, what hinders you from serving the Lord? What hinders you? And he stopped for a minute. And he thought about it. And at least he was honest about it. And he said, everything I own, everything I own hinders me from serving the Lord. I have so much, and I don't want to lose any of it. And just like the rich young ruler, he walked away sad. And from that time, the last thing I heard about him, actually, is that he lost most of his riches in this last economic downturn that we had many years later. But he lost it all. And I think, wow, he lost twice. The Lord called him to serve him. And the riches are all gone. And what's he left with now? A wasted life. Let the dead bury the dead. What does he mean by that, let the dead bury the dead? How can dead people bury dead people? Well, if they're spiritually dead, if they don't know the Lord, then they're dead in their trespasses and sins. Those people, the people of the world who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, can actually do an awful lot of things better than Christians can. They can certainly bury people. They can run corporations. They can run businesses. They can do all kinds of things that we can do, and probably better. Let them do it. But you preach the gospel. That's what we're called to do. Finally, the hindrance of family and friends. And another said, verse 61, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Once again, the would-be disciple has his priorities all mixed up. If Christ is to have first place in our lives, then families and friends cannot hinder our service for God. Paul says this. He even indicated that marriage, that having a wife, should not be a hindrance to you serving the Lord. This is what he said. Brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Can I ask you a question? Who are you? Really, who are you? And I want to ask you another question. What hinders you from serving the Lord? 
How would you answer that question? Lord, let me first go to college. Lord, let me first finish college. Lord, I'll serve you, but let me first get a job. Lord, I want to serve you, but let me first get married. Lord, I want to serve you, but let me first get a house. Lord, I want to serve you, but let me first get ahead in the world. I'll serve you, Lord, but let me first retire. I'll serve you, Lord, but let me first travel. I'll serve you, Lord, but let me first die. What hinders you from serving the Lord? Let's pray. Lord, as we consider your word and who you are, we want to lay at your feet our heart, our life, our everything. And we just say, Lord, do with us as you please. Lord, call us into your service. Call us to serve you. And Lord, I pray that there would be no hindrances, that we would serve you unreserved, unhindered by any of these excuses. Lord, put an end to our pride. We might serve you with gladness, with the love that you displayed, and that we might have the attitude and display our service for you as being our first priority. We just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.